Thank you all very much. What a blessing it is to hear those words sung and to worship together this morning. Uh, if you haven't already opened your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 1. Well, Merry Christmas. I trust that you have uh, enjoyed the, the time this year with family, with friends, of the songs that we've sung, the, uh, just the festivities that accompany this time. One such thing is that often happens is you end up watching a Dickens' A Christmas Carol, one of the many renditions that are out there now. And you may remember in it, uh, you have the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge, and he asks the question of his nephew, after Hugh tells him Merry Christmas, he says, what right have you to be merry? What reasons have you to be merry? Now, in spite of the source of that question, it is actually a very profound and fitting question this season where we are quick to wish Merry Christmas or a Happy New Year, it is good and right to stop and ask, what is it that purports to make this time of year merry or happy? What cause is there for persons to be joyful? Should and can all persons be joyful this time of year? Those are important questions. Those are very serious questions to ask. And I would offer this morning that while many persons can find some type of joy, some form of happiness this uh, Christmas time, that it's Christians, more than any other persons, who have reason for being merry and making merry each Christmas season. And that's not to ignore the goodness of God and that he has allowed all mankind to find some joy in seasons and circumstances of life, but it's only those who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel that can experience and express the depth of joy that God intends this season. It's particularly true in light of a sin-cursed world filled with sorrow, sickness, sadness, suffering, and death. And yet for the Christian, there is joy to be found, profound joy, even where earthly sorrow exists. This morning, we're going to look at one of the very first persons to receive the Christmas message, really the very first human person, and observe what it was that made her joy so great. And in so doing, learn how we might emulate her great joy and join with Mary in being joyful Christmas worshipers. Our scripture reading this morning really provided us with the context for this passage. And the Christmas season in general directs our attention to the incarnation of Christ, to his virgin birth. We've talked about it, we've sung about it for the past month. And as we read the beginning of the Christmas story this morning, we are reminded that Mary learned that she is or will soon be pregnant through a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And shortly after Gabriel departs, the Holy Spirit comes over Mary and she conceives in her virgin womb. And it's at that time that Mary then goes to Elizabeth's home somewhere in the hill country of Judah. Now Mary, as you can imagine, now pregnant, realizing that she is pregnant, realizing that the words that were spoken to her by Gabriel the angel are now true and have come to fulfillment is thinking carefully upon those words. All that was said by Gabriel, the miracle in her womb, the expression of this inward meditation as she travels those days up into 
Elizabeth's home, you can just imagine the meditation that's going on in her mind as she begins to think about all that was said, all that's being done, all that's taking place. That then she arrives with Elizabeth in her first recorded speech. The expression of this meditation of her heart from these days of travel are recorded for us as scripture. And it's found in Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary's response to Elizabeth's greeting is a song. It's actually a psalm of praise and worship. Mary's response to Elizabeth and the part she is playing in this grand story of redemption, as we read it this morning, it is filled with Old Testament scripture. It is profound in its theology. It is deeply worshipful. And at the same time, it is beautifully composed. It demonstrates to us a person who is steeped in scripture. She's quite articulate. Far from that poor, illiterate farm girl that may often come to mind, she is someone who was a profound theologian even in her youth. She was a student of scripture. Really, I think the closest parallel I can think of is David as a young shepherd in the hills, known for his skill and his theological profundity in psalm writing and hymnody. And we find the same characteristic in Mary, capable of expressing a psalm as rich as any David composed. And it's by studying Mary's psalm of praise, we can likewise learn how to deepen our experience and our expression of Christmas joy. So read along with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in Verse 46, and this is in response to Elizabeth's greeting. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning in grateful praise. As we conclude this Christmas worship of this season that we have been celebrating, that our hearts would be oriented toward this psalm, this truth, that we would join Mary in offering this praise. Help us as we study this morning to, to think carefully and to understand the depths of the truth that is being communicated and would, as we plummet its depths, would it release a wellspring of rejoicing in our hearts. Pray these things in your name, amen. As we reflect on this psalm, this hymn of praise, there's really three features of Mary's praise that demonstrates here how to cultivate joy and be Christmas worshipers, or really worshipers and joyful worshipers all year long. And it's, we see that as she reflects on God's nearness and salvation, as she remembers God's great deeds, and as she rejoices in God's promises. And so to begin with, let's look at the first of First three verses, verses 46 through 48 of Mary's psalm, and 
And note here how she does that, how she reflects on God's nearness first in salvation as an expression of that praise. Mary's psalm is commonly called her Magnificat, coming from the first word in the Latin translation of her praise. This is an exaltation. It's the lifting someone up in great or high esteem. It's what we do at a graduation or a special award ceremony. We speak highly about a person. We lift them up. We praise them. We honor them. Here the object of this praise is the Lord as we see right at the beginning. And yet this is no ordinary reference to the Lord. It's not just a passing reference. In fact, if you look back in verse 43 and note that Elizabeth rightly recognized that the Lord has become a babe in Mary's womb. The Lord whom Mary is praising here is in her womb. This unborn child is the Lord God. This is Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. Mary declares that her soul is lifting high the Lord. The soul describing her being, her inward thoughts, her intentions, her will. Mary parallels spirit to soul in verse 47 and forms a, it's called a hendiatus, a means of expressing one idea with two words. She's not describing a separate part of her inner being, but rather it's a further description of her inner personality. For poetic effect, she uses this related term to describe her entire being. Everything that composes who she is is caught up in praising God. And she wants to make certain that we understand this and it captures every aspect of her being. In poetry, parallelism is used to not only reiterate what has been said, but to also add additional information to the idea and further our understanding in some way. Even what we call synonymous parallelism isn't 100% synonymous. It's usually more of a stair step in parallelism where these stairs overlap. They reiterate some of the same idea, but then they add some new information. Verse 47 is no exception. Mary is describing her rejoicing, but unlike the previous statement of just generic rejoicing, she now describes a specific attribute of this Lord that gives her cause for great joy. Namely, that the Lord is what? Her Savior. The same Lord who has come to dwell within her is at once her baby, her Lord, and her Savior. It really answers the question of the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know, doesn't it? Yes, she knew. She knew and understand with more theological insight and acumen than most today. In verse 47, Mary identifies the source of joy, God, her Savior. You may recall that Gabriel, as we read, told her to name her son Jesus. That's the Greek translation of the name Joshua, meaning salvation, or the Lord saves. Back in verse 32, Mary is told Jesus is the son of the Most High. He is the son of God, and as his name implies, he is our Savior. The very name Jesus implies his salvation. In Titus 3, 4 through 6, Paul describes our salvation coming from both God, our Savior, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uses them the exact same way. They are interchangeable because Jesus is God. 
Since the announcement from Gabriel, Mary has had salvation in mind. From the very naming of this child, saying this is Jesus, it would have been unmistakable to her. The, the thing that would have been rolling around in her mind is this is one who saves. To tie back into our study in Matthew and where we've been at, this is the one who will give us rest. So Mary has had salvation in mind, coupled with the promises of a king who would reign on David's throne. And so she immediately describes God's nearness and salvation. See, one far off and detached does not save. A savior is one who is near, who is invested in the affairs of a person or persons. If someone is drowning, you cannot save them by calling out to them and just trying to instruct them in how to swim. You might be able to warn someone, you might be able to provide instruction from a distance, but to save them, you've got to jump in and go get them. You've got to become personally invested in them. So Mary's worship begins with God's nearness, which is quite appropriate given the prophecy from Isaiah 7. God with us. This is not a God who is far off. It is a God who has come near, who has taken on human flesh and drawn near to us. In verse 48, Mary illustrates this nearness in her life personally by describing how God looked down upon her. Now, you need to know something about the ancient Near East. You see, in the ancient Near East, it was not a good thing to have a God, generic God, look down upon you. Anytime a God looked at you in Roman or Greek mythology, bad things happened. And yet with this God, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the creator, the sustainer of the heavens and earth, for him to look upon her was a good and blessed thing. He is unique. He is unlike any other God. And he turns his attention and gaze upon her. She was poor. She had nothing to boast boast in as far as the world was concerned. And yet because his attention and gaze was fixed upon her and he drew near, the second half of verse 48 Mary is able to describe the blessedness of her existence. Not because God elevated her socioeconomic status. In fact, later she becomes a political refugee and a foreigner in Egypt before returning to Nazareth with Joseph, who was little more than a day laborer. Her socioeconomic position didn't really improve. Her economic and political position doesn't change the slightest, and yet she knows that all future generations will consider her blessed or happy because of her circumstances, because the Lord has drawn near. Not because she's wealthy or safe, but because God is close to her. It's a great reminder that the nearness of God is the real source of joy and peace and blessing in this life. As we looked at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and those Beatitudes, It's that blessed, the blessed, the blessed, the blessed, and all of them center on that nearness of God. When we remain anxious, when we remain depressed, it's because we are not rightly remembering how God has visited us, saved us, and cared for us. Put simply, we have forgotten that God is with us. It's implicit that Mary considers herself blessed, but what she explicitly says is that others will consider her blessed for generation after generation because of what God has done for her. And it's appropriate to note here that while Mary appears to have tremendous character, was clearly obedient, believed scripture, knew scripture, 
understood the promises of God, there is nothing she did that earned her this blessing. This was wholly a gift from God. And when she says that all generations will consider her blessed, she, her, her mind is fully in the Old Testament. Those Old Testament scriptures, specifically upon God's provision of a son to Abraham and Sarah, and upon God's provision of a son to Hannah, and most recently in his provision of a son to Baron Elizabeth. In fact, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And look at the opening verse of Hannah's psalm. Another woman in the Old Testament who's a profound theologian. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah's psalm opens when she says, she prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I, what, rejoice in your salvation. It's impossible to miss the similarities between the psalms of praise between these two women. Mary sees herself in the tradition of Hannah and Sarah and now Elizabeth, for whom God worked miraculously with regard to children. And because of them, all subsequent generations have looked upon these women as blessed because of what God did. And Mary recognizes the same will be said of her. Not because of anything significant in her, not because she is some great person, but because of what the Lord has done. Notice she's not making herself the source of the blessing, rather she's the recipient. In fact, it's a horrible error to take Mary, who is the recipient of the blessing, and make her the object of worship instead of the creator. The one who opened and closes the womb, the one who works miraculously. Mary would be appalled at the worship given to her by so many in the world, in the Roman Catholic Church and others. She is trying to direct our attention to God, not herself. She only uses herself and her circumstances as a demonstration of God's great power. Notice she's the object, not the source. This is abundantly clear. She immediately turns our attention to previous generations and the past deeds of God, deeds accomplished before she was ever born. Notice in verses 49 through 53 is Mary now turns our attention in this psalm even further to the wonderful power of this God who saves. Mary's rejoicing is enhanced by remembering God's great deeds. In verse 49, Mary draws attention back to the Old Testament. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Again, she's pointing us right back to Christ. She's pointing us to God. She's not trying to point to herself. She only uses herself to draw attention to God, making herself the object of God's deeds and actions. Mary uses the term mighty one. It may not seem so significant, but understand this is the only time in the New Testament you find this used as a name for God. You see it as a description for his deeds, but only here do you find it used as his name. But notice how Mary connects God's great work of salvation through Jesus to the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Because while it's not used as a name for God in the New Testament. It's used over and over again as a name for God in the Old Testament. Mighty One, or Almighty, in fact, is first introduced in Genesis 17.1, where God says to Abraham, I am God Almighty. I am the Mighty One, El Shaddai. 
After that, it's used 47 times as a name for God in the Old Testament. But it's that first connection, that genesis, as you, if you will, of this term that is so significant. Because God's covenant to Abraham is when he told him that I am El Shaddai because his covenant to Abraham was centered on his promise of a son to Sarah who was barren and ultimately through these generations the promised seed as Paul reminds us in Galatians singular looking forward to Christ but it required the giving of a son. The problem was you had a woman who was in her 90s who had never had a child. It was impossible. But God said He was El Shaddai, the Almighty, and he could fulfill his promises. In fact, just a few verses later in Genesis 18, 14, the angel of the Lord, who is, by the way, the pre-incarnate Christ himself, asks with regard to opening the womb of Sarah, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Or more accurately, is anything impossible for God with regard to Sarah's barrenness? And if that sounds familiar, it should. What did the angel Gabriel say in Luke 1, 37? Is anything impossible with God? In answer to Mary's question, how can this be? It takes us right back to the Abrahamic covenant. Nothing is impossible with God. God has a history of doing the miraculous, of opening and closing the womb. The connections to and fulfillments of God's promises through Jesus here are unmistakable. After the angel left and Mary journeyed to visit Elizabeth, her mind must have been flooded with scripture and connections between what the angel said and what had happened to her. She remembered God's wonderful deeds and actions in history. In fact, it was the fruit of this scriptural meditation and connections to Old Testament truths that resulted, as we've already said, in this psalm of Mary. David and other human authors of scripture would use earlier scriptures as they constantly referenced them, alluded to them, echoed them, in their writings, and in their hymns. As they developed a little bit further from what had been revealed previously in Scripture, this great plan of redemption. And note just a few of the examples of how Mary drew upon earlier Old Testament writings and specifically God's character in Scripture for her joy and her worship. It's a pattern for us in how to cultivate joy as we remember God's good deeds. If you look at 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10... You find echoes throughout of Mary's hymn. You see that praise and exaltation. You see that reference to God as my Savior in verse 1. Then in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 2, you see the echo of the humble state. Jumping back up to verse 2, you see the echo of holy is his name. In verse 9, that he protects those who fear him. In verse 3, how he scatters the proud. 7, how he brings down the mighty. Verses 7 and 8, how he exalts the humble. Verse 5, how he fills the hungry with food. How he sends away the rich empty-handed. In verse 10, how he's given help to Israel. Mary was familiar with Hannah's hymn, and it's clear that that heavily influenced her and her thinking about the words of Gabriel and this expression of praise. As we turn back to Mary's words, look down at verse 50. 
There we read that the Lord's mercy is to generation after generation that fear him. That word for mercy is that Old Testament term, chesed. It's God's loyal, his faithful love. In fact, this is the center of Mary's psalm. The center of her psalm picks up on the term most closely associated with the theme of redemption, God's loyal love. For example, Exodus Verse six describes him as showing loving kindness, that is his loyal love or his chesed to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. In Psalm 103, 17, we read that the loving kindness, the chesed of the Lord is from everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, generation after generation. Mary continues this theme of remembering the great deeds of God in verse 51 with the description, mighty deeds with his arm. It's an ancient Near East colloquialism describing sovereignty and strength. It was used numerous times in Exodus and Deuteronomy and occurs throughout the Psalms, specifically with connection to salvation. In Psalm 98, we read, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness. One commentator identified at least 15 different Old Testament scripture passages that offer explicit allusion with Mary's psalm. And that, that number is probably well understated. Mary continues to highlight the attributes of God as she reflects upon and remembers his great deeds. We've already noted the nearness of God, but she returns to that attribute in verse 55 through his personal communication with his servants as he draws near to them. She thinks upon his great compassion in verses 48 through 49. She meditates upon his holiness in verse 49. She praises his mercy in verses 50 through 54. She regards his strength in 51. She worships his sovereignty and dominion in verses 51 through 52. She's grateful for his provision in verse 53. She rejoices again in his salvation that has already been expressed in verse 47, again in verse 54. And rejoices in his faithfulness in verse 55. Just meditating upon the character of God as expressed in these mighty deeds. So what does that all mean? How does that help us? Well, when we reflect upon God's great deeds, they become to us a great source of joy as they begin to demonstrate or remind us of his character and who he is. It also reminds us that when we want to worship the Lord, we want to praise the Lord, we don't need to be overly creative. All we need to do is go back to history. Start in Scripture Around Christmas is a perfect time to do that and to begin reminding yourselves yet again of God's great deeds in the past, of reading what he has done throughout history. And then once you've done that, it's quite appropriate to stop and think, how have these same characteristics of God been shown in my life? Scripture primes us to be sensitive to that awareness and to give him praise and thanksgiving for that. Everything in the Old Testament was preparing us for the Messiah. Paul reminds us in Galatians that the promise to Abram of a descendant through whom all the world would be blessed was a reference to Christ. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, walked through the 
the law, the prophets, and the writings showing how it all was to direct us to Christ and prepare for his coming. And so as we seek to be joyful Christmas worshipers, as we seek the source of that joy, we want to use all of Scripture to remind ourselves implicitly and explicitly of the wonderful promise of Emmanuel, God with us, but not just that, but who is this God who is with us? What is his character? What are his attributes? Who is he? That's what Mary does as she thinks upon his great deeds. This is not just his deeds in the abstract, it's what do these deeds show us about Christ? And then you remember in wonderful awe that this God, this great God, has drawn near and invites us to draw near to him. What does he say in Matthew eleven twenty-eight? 28? Draw me near to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same God who is drawn near to us invites you to draw near to him. Praising God as we remember his deeds creates a natural transition because as we see the faithfulness of God in the past, our confidence and faith becomes bolstered in trusting him for the future because God has promised things for the future. And it gives us confidence and anticipation of what is to come. Confidence that he will fulfill those promises because of who he is and what he has done in the past. The hope of what we have not yet seen, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. And Mary directs our attention to this very thing as we see her worship move on to be characterized by rejoicing on God's promises, what is to come, in verses 54 and 55. And, And what I love about this is that Mary is so confident, having thought upon God and his character and his wonderful deeds, she is so confident in what the angel has declared and said will come to come to pass, and what she knows from Scripture is going to come to pass, that even though she's barely able to yet call herself pregnant, she she speaks in a way that assumes that the promises have already come true. She frames this giving of help as if it's already complete and it's already a finished action in the past. And yet Christ has not yet been born. He has not yet fulfilled the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to which Mary refers. Grammarians like to call this a prophetic perfect or a prophetic use of a complete action, or to put it a bit more simply, Mary is stating a future truth with absolute certainty as if it were a completed act because she is so confident the Lord is going to do this. It's very common throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. And it demonstrates the unwavering faith Mary had in the words of Gabriel and the Old Testament prophets. And more importantly, the unwavering faith Mary had in her Savior. In verse 54, Mary notes that her confidence is because of God's loyal love, his mercy, or to borrow that Old Testament term, his chesed. Mary's reference to help is again closely related to that word save or salvation. She's closing out her psalm by reminding us again, once again, of the Savior. Her mind would have been geared toward the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, those mentioned by Gabriel regarding the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In addition, as she was traveling and meditating upon Gabriel's words, she has already made, as we noted, numerous connections to the Abrahamic covenant, upon which so many of the Old Old Testament covenants are predicated. Mary says as much herself when she notes in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, specifically to Abraham and to his seed. 
Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. He inaugurated the New Covenant. And we join with Mary and the redeemed of Israel in anticipating the, with praise Christ's reign as king upon the earth on David's throne. And for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. This psalm opened with the expression, and Mary said. It closes, though, with a reminder of what God said and what God promises. Promises spoken to Abraham and the fathers. Mary's confidence and faith in God's promises is an example to be imitated. We have many promises from God in the Old Testament and from Christ in the New Testament, but as we reflect upon Mary's joyful praise this morning, this hymn of worship, I want to remind you of the final promise Jesus gave to his disciples before ascending to heaven, where he said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And again, the reason for focusing upon that is the appropriateness given the season of celebrating Emmanuel. Jesus came and is with us, not was with us. If there's any cause for rejoicing, it's this. That Jesus is with us through his spirit whom he sent to minister to us until he should return and reign. God is with us. This young girl, Mary, meditating upon the words of Gabriel, upon meditating on the Old Testament, she pondered God's deeds and God's promises, was able to offer profound praise in recognizing, in recognizing the Messiah. And she did it where so many great teachers and religious leaders of Israel could not, as we've studied and will continue to study. Her expression of joy and praise gives us an example and pattern to be emulated in rejoicing and making merry this Christmas season. And really, every Christmas season. It's not Mary we worship, we're not venerating Mary, but nor should we push her aside as some poor Jewish girl who was a passive vessel. Her theological acumen and knowledge of Scripture, her faith in the Savior would shame many of us if we were standing next to Mary. She had the same scripture from which to study. These same scriptures infused her worship so that when the time arrived for her to offer this psalm of praise, it flowed from her lips as a beautiful composition. It's really, it's a sweet reminder for us to meditate and study scripture so that we might know God and be empowered to follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul to rejoice always. If you wonder why rejoice, you haven't been studying enough. You haven't been, met, been with God enough. You haven't been in prayer enough. Because when you're praying with him, when you're meditating with him, when you are drawing near to him, when you are studying his attributes, you're never going to be at a lack of things for which you can give thanks and praise for. Mary's Magnificat provides us with a helpful pattern of joyful worship. So we observe these three features of Mary's psalm, how it reflects on God's nearness and salvation, how she reminds us of God's great deeds, and how she rejoices in God's promises. And it helps us so that we can answer better than before the question Ebenezer Scrooge asked his nephew, what right have you to be Mary? Because if we were in the shoes of that nephew, we would now be able to answer, how can we not be Mary? 
For Mary herself has given us a reminder and a pattern of Christmas praise that would warm the coldest heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this reminder we have from your servant Mary. The great worship and praise she offered to you, the rich theological truths that filled her psalm of worship. Father, not just in, as we close out this Christmas season, but throughout the year and in seasons to come, would we be quick to offer you praise, rejoicing in our great salvation. Father, let that be a mark of our lives, how we rejoice in you. Father, if there are any that don't, do not know you, I pray that they would draw near to you. They would look upon Christ as their only hope, Put their faith on him for salvation. Father, you are, you've given Christ as our only hope. He's the only way, he's the truth, and he's the life. We know that no one comes to you except through the door of Christ. Thank you for this season where we get to remind ourselves and one another of that. In your name, amen.